When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, we talk about survival, adaptation, and why there's no place for manners in the apocalypse. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes of some of our favorite video games. I'm Lawrence. And my name's Leo. And we have a special treat for you guys today. We're going to talk about a game that I've been trying to talk about on Lore Party since like season two, The Last of Us. Gosh, the first, you know, we had a meeting as Lore Party of like, what games do we want to play? And immediately it was like, Last of Us, Last of Us, please, Last of Us, like me too. And we decided to wait. We decided to hold off because the new game's coming out. Super exciting. And what a, what a great time to like revisit this gym. Yeah, what a great time to actually like finally be able to go through this. Season two, Lawrence can uh, rest in peace now, <laughs> I feel like. Wow, that's, that's pretty dark. Yeah, just like this game. <laughs> just like this game. <laughs> Even though I'm in a surprisingly upbeat mood talking, <laughs> talking about it. Well, that's the thing. Like, I was, I was, I was kind of rewatching the uh, the story. I was re-experiencing the story, and the whole time, I'm just like, I am so happy. What a great game! This is so much fun. And I'm watching people getting their like heads shot off and all sorts of just crazy, dark, terrible stuff going on. You know, and, and I even forgot some of the moments that were really like hard to watch, like Ellie pulling Joel off of that spike. You know? Yeah. Like my second playthrough was was crazy i I appreciated the story a lot more um i knew what was happening so i could like i I took more time to enjoy like everything that was going on around me so like the spike thing i was like okay as soon as i open this door i know what's gonna happen so let's get ready for some sadness yeah totally so in this uh, in this series, we're going to be talking about all sorts of things. But in today's episode, we're going to start off with just a brief recap of the timeline of Last of Us, and we're going to be talking about someone very special, near and dear to our hearts, and that is not Joel, not Ellie, not Marlene, but Ish. Ish. Oh my God. The name that set sail a thousand ships, or maybe just one. But you know, that's the guy. He's the dude. He's the man. Be still, my heart, man. Be, st- be still my beating heart the the name that whispers on the winds of spring okay so the last of us part one was released in 2013 and coincidentally in the game uh the beginning of the events that you sort of are introduced to is in 2013 and there's this infection this cordyceps brain infection kind of referred to as cbi uh, begins spreading around the world. It started in South America, apparently in the crops, is is what I read, and uh, and then it kind of spread around the world through Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, by September of 2013, it reached the U.S. and by late September, Joel's birthday, it uh, it reaches 
Austin, Texas, which is where our protagonist is living. Um, now, this, this kind of begins this pattern within the United States, especially, and I'm sure all over the world, of like the infection hits Austin, Texas, and pretty quickly the military gets kind of a hold on things. Like they start shutting down cities and they start establishing these quarantine zones. But the way that it ends up working is the infection is spreading faster than the quarantining is happening. So the infection continues to spread, right? And it eventually kind of presumably engulfs the entire planet. There isn't really, um, throughout the game, we're not really told of any places that's, that survived unscathed, right? Yeah. To, just to add to that really quickly, like um, there's a part of the game where you're in the, the college mm-hmm. and you're like walking around and you find a note and it's like the estimate is like either 60% of the world's population is either dead or infected. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, and they start like, uh, and like the military has refused to go more than 10 miles from any quarantine zone to search for survivors. So after wow. a point, the military basically abandons people. Jesus, that's crazy. I didn't, I don't see, I don't remember that note. That's awesome. Wow. The second playthrough, I found a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting back to the timeline. So we have this pattern of infection reaches the city and the city is quarantined. Now, the quarantines are being enacted by the military, the U.S. military, at least as far as like Joel's story is concerned. And there was an organization that launched within a year of the initial spread of this infection in 2013 or 2014 called the Fireflies. And the Fireflies were were, uh, organized by a woman named Marlene. And they basically made it their goal to try to reestablish non-military governance. And they're also on a separate track. They're focusing on developing a vaccine or trying to find a vaccine to cure this disease versus, as you pointed out, the military is only going, what, 10 miles from every quarantine zone? So they've sort of just said like, well, we've got the guns, we've got the means of keeping these people safe. We're not even going to try to deal with the problem. The problem's out there now, and this is the world we live in. So the fireflies are sort of rebelling against this. They start kind of combating the, uh, the military in the various quarantine zones. And in some cities, the fireflies win. The fireflies actually defeat the local military presence and force them out. Now, what ends up happening in, in a lot of these cities is the civilization that the fireflies have saved, they don't want the fireflies to do the same thing to them as the military was doing. So oftentimes the saved civilians basically overthrew then the fireflies and entered into this sort of survival of the fittest cities where it's sort of anarchistic and it's, you know, whoever can provide provides and whoever can't dies or is killed or exiled. For the, uh, for the fireflies, from what I understand, it seems like they're supporting these coups. So, like, there's a spot in Pittsburgh when you're going through, uh, like, right before you go into the coffee shop, there is a secret door, and you find a note from a lady, and it was, seems like how it started is the citizens protested military control. The theme that I understand, and I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on this one, is that... um the the big thing is it doesn't seem like civilization was moving forward under military control. It seems like it was super stagnant. And I yeah. think that's the way the military wanted it to keep the people stagnant. So they, you know, didn't rebel or didn't explore and the military didn't go back out and save, you know, these people. So we have pockets of survivors or these like, you know, ragtag groups across the world. So 
it seems like what the fireflies were probably doing was, you know, as these protests were happening and like as there were like violent repercussions of the protests, because like in the note I'm referencing, the lady talks about how her son was just a part of a protest and was killed. And that drove her to like join a more like serious armed rebellion. I feel like the fireflies were probably supporting these different rebellions with like weapons and oh yeah. Uh, yeah. like, you know, tactical uh, plans or whatever. And then just as you say, um, once the, you know, these rebels were successful, they were like, you know, we don't owe the fireflies anything because we did this. So like firefly, I feel like the fireflies did as much bad as they did good in these situations. Like it was good intentions, but ultimately they ended up creating some really terrible groups in this world. Well, that's, I mean, so, so that is, that is objectively true. Like when you meet the cannibals, it's hard to be like, what a well-adjusted group of survivors. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's very clearly like, man, this is not, this is not the best. Um, and they <laughs> definitely exist because of a Firefly Rebellion. But I would also say one of the things that makes this game so compelling is it is very much like other quality franchises, this world of greys. Yeah. Even yeah. Joel, the main character, is such a dick for so much of the game. Like, he's, he's such a, just a bastard of like, well, can I profit from it? You know, and I understand what the military is trying to do. They found stability, right? And this is going to be something we talk about during this episode. Stability and like a system that works at keeping people alive is so hard to fathom for so many survivors. And the military achieved that. And it's like, okay, let's not fix what's broke. Or like, what? let's not fix what's not broke. So I understand where the military is coming from, but I also understand that without making any progress, they are voting for, well, the 60% of people who are lost are lost for good and they're dead and we need to move on versus the fireflies going, well, we might still be able to save people. We might still be able to make ourselves immune so we can actually end this crisis and move back to our homes. So everybody has sort of a valid point, except for the cannibals, <laughs> but everybody, everybody has like a totally valid moral compass i'd say um it's just a matter of like what the focus is at any given moment and when you first encounter the hunters driving into pittsburgh in the truck joel mentions uh ellie asks like how did you know that the uh the guy was not injured and joel mentioned he's like i've been on both sides of that experience which is interesting to me because i forgot that joel was probably a hunter in a hunter city now, some of that is a little bit speculative because one of the trends in this game is that you don't have a lot of an individual character being like, well, Ellie, let me tell you all about what happened from the beginning. It's very little of that. It's sort of like what you learn through the notes that you find and through some dialogue. Like you find out that, of course, Tommy was a part of Fireflies, but he left. And that, in a lot of ways, does such a great job of building character without making it feel like you're reading the informational pamphlet about these characters, you know? Right. And I, I think that um, this is such an interesting point that Joel was a hunter and, you know, it'll be something that goes into a future episode, like an entire psychoanalysis on Joel as a survivor. Like, I think that's where Joel got his kind of killer instinct that you see throughout the game because Joel kills a lot of people like mercilessly and without second he thought. He kills so many people. 
so easily. And you see that when he's like disconnected from Ellie, that like his killer instinct is at a hundred percent. Like he can kill without thought and even torture. But like Joel being a hunter at that point in the game, like that little just brief, you know, like, well, I've been on both sides. And then she's like, holy shit. But it makes so much sense to you because I'm like, wow, I've killed so many people to get to this point. And I haven't like, you know, whether it's neck breaking or shooting or whatever, I've been very tactical about this. And it doesn't make sense for this man who's been, um, you know, in this crisis for 20 plus years now, just as a smuggler, especially when so many other people have died around him. So that was like the that was such a little tidbit of a story that was was crazy. We're going to keep this conversation going, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, it's Abu again, and I wanted to take a minute to just tell you about our friends over at Toast. So Toast is a company that makes these custom, handcrafted, gorgeous covers for your smartphone or your tablet, or even your gaming device. In celebration of our 100th episode, they sent me a custom-made Switch cover, and to top it off, they engraved the Lore Party logo on it. It's beautiful, you can check out the photos on our social media on Instagram and Twitter, but if you're interested, go to Toastmade.com and see what they have to offer. Get yourself a new cover. So... Of course, in, in in about 2033, so this is about 20 years after the initial outbreak of the infection, we get the gameplay, basically. You, you're introduced to Joel in this new timeline, and he and Tess, who are, uh, they are, they are smugglers in this, in this quarantine zone. But in general, they, uh, they, they kind of have a life going on. Now, again, as we've mentioned, we're going to talk a lot about this game and about this world in future episodes. But for now, we're focusing on sort of what remains you know, what's what's sort of left of humanity. So while they are the focus of the game, we encounter survivors throughout the game that do a great job of sort of establishing our understanding of what's left in the world. And some of them seem to be doing okay. So to, to start off, hunters, for the most part, are sort of living in this sort of anarchy, but more or less surviving. And they haven't yet turned to eating each other. And they haven't turned to the darkest of humanity. Um, as we mentioned, there are cannibals in, in, in a few pockets of uh, like David founds this group of cannibals. And in the trailers to Last of Us 2, we get some glimpses of another group of people called the Seraphites. And I'm excited because we get to maybe see more of the world. We get to understand more of what is left of the world. Yeah. The hunters are interesting though. Um, because the hunters are Basically what happens when you create any kind of like rogue military organization or when another, I mean, it, this is just going to go back to what I said earlier about the fireflies influencing rebellion. They basically created a uh, like kind of guerrilla military group that, um, that rebelled against its own creator. So you have this group of survivalists or survive. Yeah. Group of survivalists who you know, who have killed to claim their territory and then they continue to kill people that, enter their territory for their own survival. I think they're opposed to eating a person, but they're not opposed to like killing innocent people and, you know, taking small things like, you know, a little bit of supplies, clothes, 
um, weapons and then selling them off or doing whatever it takes. It's also, I think it's been implied, if not stated explicitly, that they are prone to things like murdering, again, for fun, when it's not, strictly speaking, necessary. But right. I do think it's worth mentioning, like, they refer to people traveling as tourists, oh, which, God, yeah. which, which, while kind of tongue-in-cheek in a disgusting way, also reinforces the fact that this is a game of grace, right? Like, this is these are not evil people going, these are human beings doing what we're doing, just trying to survive. It, it establishes they have a term for it, they have a word for it, which allows them, many of them, to think about tourists as this vague thing, right? You talk about runners. You don't talk about a human who's been infected by CBI who used to be someone's father. You talk about a runner, right? right? You talk about a clicker. You talk about a bloater. Giving them names like tourists makes it easier to be like us versus them. Yeah, that's it's a good way to look at it. Like it, it is easy to just be like, this is a you know runner, clicker, tourist, you know, whatever. Um, that that is a good way, and I think maybe that's how they're doing it. I think Joel necessarily is just like that's always on. That's always on um 100%. Like if you're not in his group, you're just something that's in the way and he can yeah. give it a name to justify doing the things that he needed to do to survive. Yeah. He is he is a byproduct of this sort of post CBI world. Now there are a couple of examples of sort of post CBI survival groups that give us an alternative approach to things. And one of them that is worth mentioning, definitely, is the sort of lawful good uh, brother, Tommy, and his group of survivors at the, uh, at the, the uh, hydroelectric plant. You know, talk, you've, you've played this game the most recently between us. So talk us through, you meet Tommy unexpectedly early, because I, I think you're expecting to see him much later, or like in a further different place. Yeah, you're... When you meet Tommy initially, um, you're just attempting to pass through um, a power plant and you don't expect anyone to be there um, because his civilization is a little further on. Um, It's crazy because he's rounded up a community of 20 families um, of like engineers, um, presumably other types of people. Right. Skilled people, people with like applicable abilities, right? Yeah, he got a lot of craftsmen. It's like he just found the one group of trade skill people (laughs) and then formed a kick-ass community. And so they have everything from, you know, sustainable um, food sources to electricity, which electricity in it by itself is like phenomenal because at this point people haven't had working electricity in the outside world in over 20 years. Right. And it's clear that in that moment where he goes, Joel, we have electricity. Like that declaration is symbolic of all of the accomplishments that we're talking about, right? It's like, yes, 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 yes. We have people who can train horses and we have horses and like, yeah, you know, whatever. We have electricity. Like it's that, that desperation of like, we haven't had this in decades and we have it or we sometimes have it. And they have the, the ability to like maintain and repair a hydroelectric plant. So they've got very intelligent people like you know that are are working together which working together is the big focus of this group um like they are surviving as one this is a collective but this is also like not a a group that is it is hostile on the surface but they are willing to let people in they are willing to share this bit of like pre uh cbi world 
with outsiders as long as they're not hostile. But in a non-totalitarian style of rule, like people are accustomed to inside of the quarantine zone. And in my head, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about it like the, the reason civilization, and, and this is broadly about humanity in general, the reason civilization progresses is because of specialization and, and diversification of responsibilities, right? Like I personally can be a voice actor and I can be a singer and I can do all the things that I do because there are people who are farmers, right? right. We can make this podcast and not worry about hunting food because food is provided to us by other people's efforts. And in general, in this post-CBI world, the military quarantine zones are actually pretty stable because the individuals inside of them don't have to fight for their survival against infected people. The military provides you this sort of like, you, you don't worry about it, we've got it covered, right? But Tommy's group really is an anomaly. And a big reason I think it works is because it returns to that basic mathematical equation of if you have people taking care of protection, then you can let other people specialize and deviate and have other responsibilities like taking care of the horses. That is the biggest differentiator that we've seen so far in Last of Us 1, because it seems like with hunter groups or with cannibals or, you know, whoever we run into, everybody's doing the same thing. So like no one's really adding value. We're just kind of we're staying stagnant. And I think we see kind of a a small glimpse of a civilization that was close to what Tommy was trying to do. Yeah. With uh, Ish and his group, um, which is something that like we really want to focus in on on this episode. Well, his story leaves an impression, right? Yeah. <laughs> like so, so profound was his impact that I remember loving the character and loving everything that he brought to the world of Last of Us that even after I'd forgotten elements of like, who he was. And of course, like as I started replaying and rewatching the game, a lot of it came back to me immediately. But like, I love finding the remnants of cities and the remnants of civilization because it just, as a storytelling mechanism, it's so fascinating. You know, when you find Ish's survival, like when, when you find the sewer system that Ish and the other survivors in Ish's group kind of inhabited, there are cages for pets which says so much like that says just this incredible amount about how stable they were and how much resources they had. Yeah. When other groups of people are literally eating other people, Ish's (laughs) group was like, yeah, we can have animals for comfort and not eat them immediately because we're starving. What a contrast, what an incredible contrast, but it failed. And that's the sort of twist that you don't expect. Like you've already seen Tommy's group, right? You've already seen, that it is possible. So then when you see something that follows that line of reasoning that it is possible and it clearly didn't work, you know, you set off the noise trap and Ellie says something like, well, no one's coming. And Joel says like, yeah, they're probably not here anymore. It, it, It begs that question, that like haunting question of like, what happened? Like, how did it fall apart? You know? Yeah. And it's so sad. It, it's so sad. And, and, you know, to kind of go back a bit just to, uh, explain ish a little bit um because the the funny thing about him is you know all of these great things that we've said about ish you never meet him right (laughs) except for just a few handwritten notes that are left in various locations you never ever actually encounter ish in the game you basically first encounter the you know ish's story on his own boat 
that's um, run aground uh, after you escape Pittsburgh um, and the hunters that are chasing you in a tank. Um, I think like Isha's first note says a ton about his own personality Um, because his first note was just like, well, you know, I'm out at sea. I went out at sea to escape this, you know, catastrophe that's going out in the world. And it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to stay out and sea because my boat has seen better days. So I'm going to have to go see what's left of the world. And then he ends it with the best line ever. And I'm just going to paraphrase. <laughs> if you yeah. find my body, uh, please don't step on my skull. <laughs> like that line basically describes Ish's entire personality. Well, I, I think it's like pragmatism, right? Like he has a boat and he has the ability to go to sea. The CBI infection spreading like crazy. And he says, what can I do? I can go to sea. So he goes to sea. And eventually he gets to the point where he's like, I have to come back. So he comes back and then he's back and he's going, you know what? If someone finds this note, what should they know about me? Uh, just don't step on my skull, please. You know? And a lot of these decisions he makes are born out of this like realistic approach to what is possible and what can be done. And, and we'll talk more about this, but he doesn't like shun outsiders. He doesn't say you cannot join this community because realistically, really realistically, it's possible for people to join. Even if like your initial meeting is not super peaceful or whatever. So, so he is in a lot of ways a sort of pragmatist, but being a pragmatist and being a realist, the reality of this CBI infected world is so terrible. I see his like sense of humor as this magnificent coping mechanism. Like he's not making outlandish weird jokes. Like he's not the, the, the silliest person under the sun, but he certainly has a sort of dry wit that he uses to sort of take the edge off of what would otherwise be just the most depressing like admittances of the world. Exactly. And like he even admits it in one of his notes where he was just like, I need someone here to laugh at my dry jokes. Like <laughs> he he soon discovers that, like, you know, he does appreciate the company of, uh, you know, the company of others. And I think what what makes um, what makes him different from even I wouldn't say everybody's different from Joel, but what makes him different from like Tommy is um, ish. And I guess even what makes him different from Joel Ish never really lost that uh, pre like CBI infection kind of like mindset where everyone else has turned into like survivors, you know, and like like, yeah, people that are looting houses and shooting like innocent people and like, you know, taking things and doing whatever they need to do to live on their own. Um, Ish is like still talking about in his notes the good in humanity and that humanity will work this out and that they will continue to move forward and that like this is just a small inconvenience in like you know the uh the grand adventure of man well i and and i want to throw in there and you can confirm this for me because again i i it's been a been a minute since i've played the game um but i get the impression that prior to setting sail he didn't have a ton that he was leaving behind you know a lot of people i think are scarred emotionally and psychologically by what they had pre-cbi and definitely we see joel firsthand lose his daughter but when we talk about ish it seemed to me at least and and again i'm interested to hear what you have to say uh, that he didn't necessarily like leave a family behind or lose a family prior to cbi which maybe helped him maintain this sort of pre-cbi mentality right it almost that's true 
um, I'd almost to me, even through the second playthrough of the game, it felt like Ish didn't even leave because of the CBI infection. Like he might have just set sail to set sail and it kind of and like he might have like heard something that was going on and just decided to stay out on the water for as long as he could. He's very easygoing. I feel like he's just very open to everybody, but it doesn't seem like he lost anything. I'd say that up in, you know, up to the point where Ish starts to leave his notes, the only thing that he really lost was his boat and he didn't care about it that much. Like through his notes, you see him attempt to make connections with people and they either try to like, you know, harm him or, you know, kill him or there's infected around. And so like, even when he's like, you know, accosted by all these strange people that, you know, he's attempting to connect with, um, he doesn't shun them out. He just finds a place where he can hide and where people can't hurt him. But then he decides that he still wants to be around people. Yeah. So everything we know about Ish, we know from the notes and from basically exploring the, the sort of space in which his community met and lived. He mentions in the third note, this, uh, you know, trading, right? He mentioned the trading note. He says, I met with some people who did not want to shoot me on sight. Shocking, I know. And we start getting a sense of like, as you've said, it, it, there's this one interaction or this, there's this opportunity to trust. And based on that initial interaction and based on that, even if it's brief, that opportunity to say like, yeah, you know what? It is worth risking like what I have in order to collect people. And by all accounts, he does a great job for a long time. They have a school, they have pets, they have rain collectors because they're in the sewers. They have all of these things set up, all of these systems set up that allow them to continue living pretty much happily. Right, and, and one thing that they have that I want to point out that's not in the notes that I think is really awesome that you don't see anywhere else in the entire game, not even with Tommy, is they have rules. Oh, yeah. They have like a system of rules and they have checkpoints and they have uh, rules for like, you know, if, if this happens and you hear this, run to the safe zones. So they have a plan for like, if anything goes, goes wrong, it's a very well set up civilization, even if it's in a sewer and in ish fashion, like, you know, going back to his personality, like he tries to make it a home as much as possible for these people and for their kids. And you can even see that based off of like the door, the entryway to the civilization that you go through before the noise trap goes off. It's uh, they painted a castle around it like children painted a castle and they drew on the walls outside. And it's it's so like happy, but equally dark and depressing because there's nobody there. Right, right. So we have this, uh, there's this, there's this note that we kind of find. Uh, and there are a few notes that you find throughout the, the encampment that tell you basically what happened. Um, and the first one is actually a note from Kyle, right? Right. The note from Kyle tells us that um, infected have swarmed their civilization um, and they separated their groups. So Kyle unfortunately gets locked in some side room in the sewer and the infected are like pounding at the door to get to him. And Kyle has kids with him. 
So in his note, he's he's just stating that um, maybe everybody's dead. Maybe Ish is still alive. And if he is alive, he'll come for him. But in the case that he, you know, nobody comes for him, like he'll make sure that he makes the deaths of the kids quick so that they don't have to suffer. Heartbreaking, right? Right. It's it's terrible. And you see from, you know, you find the note and you find what's presumably Kyle's body and the body of the children, right. uh, the body of the children under a blanket. And uh, Kyle is just dead in the corner. And he scribbled a note onto the ground in red, which I can only assume was just blood. And it says they didn't suffer. So. Like, it's sad. Kyle had to had to kill the kids so that the infected didn't tear them apart. Right. Yeah. Brutal. Really. You know, we mentioned before, not a light game, not a fun family, happy, you know, Pixar video game. This definitely deals with some like real human stories and real loss and real tragedy, basically that, that idea of um, being so sure that Ish was going to come and save them because he had been the one to kind of, gather them in the first place yeah ish was their protector he's the protector right we do eventually find a note from ish that suggests he survived it it documents that he survived past that incident um and really drives home like why these little groups are so rare um and the note is is called the survivor's note and it starts with one open door period that's all it took, right? That someone forgot to close a door and that was it. Like the runners and the clickers got in and Ish and Susan and a couple of the kids, they basically had to seal in any remaining survivors. And this paragraph in this, this note really, I think, gets to, I think, what Joel went through and what so many people go through, right? He says, every part of my being just wants to give up. It'd be so easy to surrender to this world. I can't do that, though. I have too much faith in humanity. I've seen that we're still capable of good. We can make it. I have to stay strong for her. That is honestly the... It's such a good two paragraphs because uh, this is, is Ish's first experience with uh, the uh, CBI world that right. we live in. Like, this is his very first experience of like how this world really is and part of me hopes that we find ish or that we meet him finally in last of us 2 that he is alive because there's no i mean there's no sign that he died but it would be interesting to see you know maybe this is the first time that ish is having what he has built what he has worked for what he has faith in you know it's sort of that every decision he made every risk he took paid off right he his his little group of survivors became a larger group of survivors. They have rules, they have a school, they have water. Like, everything is coming up ish. And then one open door takes all of that away. And that's right. the reality of the CBI world. So right now, his perspective, according to the survivor's note, is I've seen too much good in humanity to give up hope. And I'm not going to give up. But what happens the second time? Like, what if Susan's taken from him and the remaining kids? And... And that's tragic and terrible. Like, does he hold on to that optimism? And this is this a new kind of person, right? Like, is this a sustainable psychological stance to have in this CBI world? 
Or is he just someone like Joel who hasn't been pushed that far yet? Well, that about wraps it up. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to grow the show. And be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at lore underscore party. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.